Hello everyone, dear patrons, welcome back to BungaCast. This is another Alpha Bonus Bonus, where we shout at you, dear friends slash pain patrons, for having dared to question our brilliant insights. Uh, we love doing these actually, very seriously. Uh, and we've got uh, quite a couple of comments and criticisms to get through. Um, and we're going to start, as usual, um, by firstly saying hello. I'm Alex. I'm Phil. I'm, I'm George. Hello. Yeah, good. Um, just checking the other guys are, are, are awake and participating. And uh, we're going to start um, back to front. I'm not going to make that wiping back to front joke again. Uh, I don't think it landed last time. Um, and they're shaking their heads. So there we go. Anyway, we're going to start with the last outfit bonus bonus. And I'm going to try as we go through this, because a lot of these refer back to the previous one or you know previous even older discussions than kind of a month or two ago uh, to try to at least put them in context. So we know and what we're talking about and that we're all on the same page. Um, so firstly, this is the alpha bonus bonus from two seven uh, number 274 from July 2022. Uh, Kenneth Smith says, I just got word that I'm going to be brutally murdered if Phil brings up lockdown more than once again. Pray for me, patrons. Um, so that's a, a message there Listen. to Phil. Um, and I think someone else commented that in the but following episode what? after this. Like COVID, like what? Just killed by a friend of his, I guess, who's like, please stop Phil from talking about lockdown all the time. Um, and in the but following episode, friend, he talks about lockdown. Why is that friend going to kill Kenneth Smith? Why wouldn't that friend I, kill? Mm, yeah, I'm no. not entirely sure. Um, I think he doesn't know where Phil lives and he lives. You know, you gotta, someone's got to die, right? <laughs> I yeah, think that's okay. the point here. Someone's got to die. And uh, the nearest, uh, the, the the proximate person will be will be uh, the one who gets it in the neck. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll try to avoid that. I don't think we've done lockdown in a while and thank God. Um, right, next point. Uh, Eli uh, makes a point. Uh, thanks, Phil, actually, for clarifying kind of the difference between uh, third worldism and fourth worldism. And actually, Phil, if you would just really quickly recap what um, those terms mean. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what fourth world is referring to. <laughs> all very what serious about here yeah um no i think for i think the idea was that you know the third world obviously was the you know rest of the world which are neither uh the western bloc nor uh the the communist bloc uh and the and fourth worldism somehow emerged probably at the end after the the fall of the soviet union and was uh, a reference to the sort of marginalized within first world countries, immigrants, uh, and so on, as well as kind of excluded elsewhere. And I think that was the basic idea. Um, Phil, was jump that in fourth if you... worldism? Yeah, I mean, so the, I mean, this conversation was a while back now. I mean, if that was fourth worldism, then yeah, it was simply to say that the, the kind of the, you know, Zapatistas and the Saint-Papiers in France and I don't know, kind of other, you know, remote kind of peripheral insurgencies of one kind or another were going to substitute for the, um, no, let's roll back. It was about the point about third world states being carved up. There you had um, a new kind of uh, insurgency, which was usually on the territory of um, the formerly the former kind of grand third world states of the previous period. So Indonesia, Yugoslavia, Libya, Iraq, you know, were carved up. Um, and usually that you had kind of these secessionist movements that were sponsored by Western states um, in the form of United Nations peacekeeping or humanitarian intervention of one form or another. And I've mentioned only like, you know, the most significant kind of moments of that. I don't, I mean, I don't 
know that it was ever called fourth worldism by anybody um but i think it was it's a, the point was i think that it was a reflex of western power in a period in which there was no kind of counterweight to western power anymore and so they could um intervene in the third world in a way that hadn't been possible previously yeah i mean i, d- I definitely think that's part of it but i think it's yeah it's um, these kind of subpopulations, excluded populations, excluded from the kind of whatever mainstream global society or whatever. In any case, the, the point here is that um, these two have merged and Eli uh, remarks on how these have been merged while calling itself the same thing. Uh, Eli also says, thank you for being based enough to note the transition in left stances during and after the Cold War. Motherfuckers today act like the left has only ever had one opinion and any excuse me, motherfuckers, <laughs> motherfuckers today act like the left has only ever had one opinion about anything. And it has to have been Jeremy Corbyn's. Um, that's good. Um, moving on. Uh, Alex McAuliffe says that, uh, and I swear this Alex McAuliffe is not Alex Hochuli, even though he happens to agree with uh, Alex Hochuli, is that very consistently. Uh, mm, no, I mean, only here, I think. But let's see. My my gut feeling is that reactions like Phil's against the possibility of Chinese economic growth and opportunity drawing migrants from elsewhere is pretty naive. Now, this refers to a discussion that we had about uh, people fleeing Afghanistan, holding on to you know the hull of a of a B fifty two bomber, trying to escape to the U S. and a d- d- disagreement between Phil and I about whether China could ever represent uh, such a destination. Um, and in fact, we returned to this conversation and asked <laughs> Branko Milanovic to adjudicate between uh, the two of us in in this week, except the episode that came out this week. Um, so there's more on that in this very recent episode. But let me just continue um, Alex's comment. Um, he thinks this idea is pretty naive, given the length that people have gone historically for a chance of a better life. I'm thinking of the migration around the world in the mid to late 19th century. At the moment, maybe America and Europe are drawing the best and the brightest who can get there. But I imagine a whole swathe of reasonable futures where this might be changed. The first things that comes to mind would be the own goal of draconian immigration policies in the US, eliminating what is today eliminating what is today's best option for migration, regardless of what is going on in China. I know very little about Chinese migrant work or immigration policies, much less their social controls, but it is an enormous dynamic and fairly politically stable economy. I don't think it's possible to draw, um, I don't think the idea that it could be a draw to people could be dismissed out of hand. Uh, Continuing on this theme, Lionel Boyd Johnson says that friends who've lived in Beijing and Shanghai for multi-year stints say that there are a surprising number of African and Middle Eastern residents. As the West becomes increasingly hostile to immigration, I could easily see China becoming a viable, even desirable option for people. Um, I, 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 I hope. So look, let me, I need to, I need to come back at this because I need to clarify what I meant. Um, the idea that it's a possible draw to many people, I don't dismiss out of hand. What I said is that there will never be people clinging to the underside of carriages in a comparable situation where, you know, young professionals in their early 20s risk their lives in the most extreme kind of scenarios in order to get into China. You know, short of an asteroid striking the Earth and China being the only kind of civilized, you know, country left. Um, I simply can't see it happening. Now, I don't think that's just, you know, that's not to say that it won't be a draw um, for, um, you know, people looking to improve their lives economically. 
I can see that, but it will never be the kind of, it will never exert the grip on people's aspirational hopes for themselves the way that the US can, unless it has a fundamental transformation of its political system. And if it achieves the same kind of, um, you know, global cultural hegemony that the US enjoys. So that's mm. what I was uh, saying. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I did uh, had a, a hopeless thought earlier this week that when all hope is lost, at least there's China. And that applies to a whole range of things. That applies to climate change. Uh, that applies to the simple idea of a national project of modernization and so on. Anyway, it's kind of grim that, you know, China represents the hopes for the future, um, such as they are. Yeah, but it really stand. doesn't. That's the point. It well, never but, but, will. but it's well, it's just because things are so bad that China you know, things are moving there and uh, it's incredible ascent. The fact that um, Chinese living standards, this has gone round today, Chinese living standards have exceeded for the first time US, uh, not living life standards, excuse me, life expectancy um, has exceeded that of the US um, now this year, which is again, pretty remarkable. So anyway, um, I don't mean to say that China represents a horizon of freedom, just that uh, the horizon of freedom recedes in the West as well as do living standards. And suddenly China seems like the less, least worst you, option. You could you could put it in the following way, that it's only for the sake of those without hope that hope is given to us. And maybe that hope is today's China. Well, what do you mean you by that? What about moving to China, Alex? Um, I mean, I have considered, I'd like to, I've never been, I'm desperate to go, um, mainly because um, of the food. Um, which is, to be honest, the main way in which I appreciate a country. Um, so I'm keen, very keen to do that. Classic um, consumer. You're just looking to. Yeah. Well, but the food is the food yeah. is brilliant. Um, yeah, it's but the way I'm to it to understand so... a nation's soul. So anyway, let, let's the move on before way. we get sidetracked. Um, we have another comment still again from the um, Alpha Bonus Bonus last one. And these, uh, the following ones all concern the article by Christopher Caldwell, which was discussed a long time ago. So um, bear with us. I'm just going to try to explain what it was. Caldwell's argument was about the origins of inflation, and he put some emphasis on Biden's stimulus and specifically the woke aspects of Biden's stimulus um, in trying to buy off key constituencies like middle class representatives of black communities and so on. Um, and lots of people took exception to this. I, I mean, I took exception to that argument as well. I just didn't find it um, have much basis. SeaWorld or Bust says that um, it seems ridiculous to assume that simply because inflation predated the war in Ukraine, the logical explanation for it must be Biden's apparently woke stimulus. I don't think I know of anyone serious who ascribes the current inflation solely to the war in Ukraine. It certainly exacerbated the spike in energy prices, but those were already worryingly high as of November, December last year. There's a reason Adam Tooze has written on this as part of a larger poly crisis. The decision to focus so narrowly on wokeness or intergovernmentality, as George, I think, rightly points to as a more interesting framework for analyzing these decisions, strikes me as simply petty and points to a typically American culture war obsession that puts the cart well before the horse. Elias Braun adds... I'm surprised that in the whole inflation discussion, especially after Phil said inflation started before Ukraine, no one mentioned the supply shocks and bottlenecks due to recovery from the COVID recession. And then finally, yeah. JK, JK. So let me just do this last one and, and George come in. JK, JK, cool. JK says to intentionally focus on wokeness as the ideological justification at the expense of more mundane causes 
uh, is simply nostalgia for social democracy and a skittishness about another 2008. It's at best misleading and at worst dishonest. If you know what the real cause is, say so. Don't dress them up in your ideological grudges. George. I'm not sure. It, I, I'm not sure if some of these criticisms are criticisms of um, Cordwell or criticisms of us. Um, I so think Caldwell, I, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think the article is useful to the extent that it does point to a political cause. This isn't, you know, inflation is not some um, economic process that nobody is able to control and that the, the, you know, the gods of the market have decreed this. There are obviously more um more factors than than just for global inflation or global cost of living crisis however you want to call it than the american government however i think there is a there is clearly a political dimension to the stimulus packages which are being given or the the, the state underwriting of for example in britain of energy costs it's, you know it's just staggering amounts of money um and I don't think it's quite right to say this is all this like a woke stimulus in every case, of course, but there certainly is a political dimension to this. Um, and yeah, I, I, about the point on, on intergovernmentality, just to kind of explain out what that that five dollar word means a little bit. I think what I was trying to get at for that was that the poly crisis or the, as Tuz would put it, or the responses to covid um you don't need a conspiracy theory to to explain why they all looked similar there's a reason that you know that the elites of all different member states across the world um so this is not just eu but but beyond this kind of hollowed out um <clears throat> unrepresentative like post nation states um they talk to each other you know they get they get slide decks from bill gates or from various consultancies and that's how they respond to things so there is a clear um, you know, the, the 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 void or the lack of ideas becomes filled by um by these kind of same uh solutions in every case. So I'm not sure if that fully um answers C World or Bust S E A World, not S E E World, um or C World or Bust's uh, comment. Um but yeah, I think there's it is imp I think that the article is like starts from the right place of saying that there is a, you know, there is a political cause to this. I would, I mean, I'd agree with what George said and build on it, which is, I think, I mean, SeaWorld or Bust's comment I'm sympathetic to because um, a lot of the initial kind of criticisms of the Caldwell article when we discussed it was that it was simply outrageous to suggest that there was any kind of, um, you know, woke or ideological aspect to the Biden administration stimulus or and by implication, the basis of its rule in the US. And that doesn't seem to me to be, you know, kind of legitimate. And so um, the reason I'm, you know, I kind of agree with what SeaWorld Orba says is because it directly addresses the question of what the, what other causes of the stimulus there might, sorry, of inflation there might be aside from the Biden stimulus. And so whereas rather than simply denying that they could possibly be, a, a, you know, that the Biden stimulus could possibly have played a role at all, and then Elias, you know, makes the absolutely good, you know, I at least I agree with it that all the kind of snap threads of all those overextended supply chains, I think, also clearly that were kind of, um, you know, uh, cut in lockdown. Um, I'm sure that all of the bottlenecks that resulted and all of the broken links and all of that, I'm sure that has a significant role. Um, to play in why inflation has remained as severe as it has mm. um, 
in the last few years. Um, but I would agree with what George said. And I would still, you know, say that the even I mean, I think, you know, the Coldwell argument probably is overstated, but I would stick with, you know, some of the core points that he makes, which is that there was kind, you know, that it was very clearly um, buying off uh constituencies that it was a response to the perceived limitations of the obama stimulus and that inflation in itself is an indication of a breakdown in a certain kind of political compact and this is a point that caldwell kind of recycled from a classic political economy um text from the 1970s about inflation so i think all of those you know that mm. it doesn't judge the question of good points in the piece in the original piece, don't just stand or fall on his specific explanation of how the Biden stimulus might have created inflation. Right. Well, there's going to be a lot more on this where uh, there's a forthcoming episode from us, obviously, on the energy crisis. So um, there'll be more on this, of course. Um, moving forward, and at the risk of getting really meta here, uh, we're discussing episode 275, or rather the responses to episode 275, which is itself our reply to critics of our book, which was a review of reviews. So this is, um, I think, four orders of, of distance. It is reviews of reviews um, of a book. No, it's comments on reviews of reviews of a book. So, um, you know, bear with us again. Um, Nigel B. Opinion says, Alex, you should have mentioned uh, in response to Phil's challenge, uh, Arktatsk, uh, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. Yes, treating Ukraine as completely novel is Eurocentric. Now, the question is here is why we treat, why one might treat or not the Ukraine war as a potential return of history and not various other conflicts around the world, many of which involve great powers. Um, there's other comments along this line. So I'm going to read them first before uh, we discuss them. Uh, JK, JK, JK again says, Phil asked for an example of major powers at war with each other. But what of India and Pakistan or the unsolved issue of Taiwan, one which sees the PRC and the US implicitly up against each other? Uh, and then adding to this kind of general discussion, D Shams underscore says, I agree with not elevating the war in Sri Lanka, which was an example, a random example that I pulled out of my uh, head um, to a world historic level. But I do think it's an interesting case, nevertheless. They go on to explain that the final defeat of the Tamils was Sri Lanka's end of history moment. And actually, it's interesting stuff in that comment, uh, should you, listener, wish to check it out and recommend it. Um, so, I mean, as, as to this point, I, I think we should try to be specific about what would make um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine a potential kind of world historic moment in contradistinction to some of these other conflicts and in contradistinction to the you know, to the Iraq war, for example, for that matter, which is um, the classic uh, Bunga war, as Adam Tews called it, um, you know, uh, and I guess, I mean, I'm just venturing and you guys come in uh, if you want. I guess it would be a great power confrontation, not just between, you know, the US, for example, and some smaller power, um, but it is one which directly sets up NATO and Russia um, face to face uh, in a way that most of these others don't, though Taiwan does. But Taiwan, of course, has not resulted in a Chinese invasion of the island as of yet. Uh, and I think well, that would yeah, be a similar so case. You've got a geo, I mean, I think the a geopolitical confrontation between China and the US, you know, that does stand. India, the wars between India and Pakistan, um, recent wars, at least, you know, the border wars over Kashmir and the glaciers and so on. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, they're 
they're border wars that were contained. And I don't think that simply not in the same league as a geo, you know, kind of a standoff on the scale of what's happening in Ukraine, just in terms of the numbers of dead, the devastation, the reverberations in the wider global economy, and the fact that, um, you know, it's if there was a wider war out of that, it's potentially a third world war, not just a nuclear war. Um, at the end of and this, you know, the wars between India and Pakistan, even, I mean, uh, you know, decade, 15 years ago and so on, India was even then kind of less of a significant actor than it is now. And that's simply by virtue of the economic growth that's happened in the meantime. Mm. And the war with Iraq, I mean, you know, that was the US claiming a right to intervene in the internal affairs of other countries um, rather than a standoff between two different states contesting their political interests you know through military means so i don't think it's um i don't think the wars of the end of history um are in the same league as the kind of conflict that we see now um or the proxy war in ukraine between did, NATO did, and did Russia. you did you yeah. say not not ju- not just a nuclear war i don't know if you want to clarify that because what what would be well more my, no, my point being that if there was a nuclear war between if a war between india and pakistan if one of those border wars had escalated into a nuclear war it still wouldn't have been a third world nuclear war. yeah okay right? i get you yeah so my point is that you know that it's not just a matter yeah, it's not just a matter of whether or not it's a nuclear war, but the scale of a global nuclear war versus, I mean, you know, it's obviously not to deny that it would have been um, hideous and devastating. But still, the point is, there's a difference between a war between large, militarily powerful mm. countries and a world war. Yeah, George. look, I mean, it would just, just have been a small regional nuclear war. I mean, those those <laughs> those it's not a problem no i mean I, I i don't have too much to add to what phil said other than i think nancy pelosi has quite a long way to go before the um, the kind of potential battle between china and the us over taiwan or or the us somehow inserting themselves into that um uh that that kind of situation would equal the the world historic kind of connotations of russia essentially setting itself against nato or arguably NATO having set itself against Russia prior to that and this this being just a another but really significant moment in that that um that conflict. So yeah, I think um I think I will have to I'm not going to try and go through all the the meta levels, but I think I will have to give a harsh review um to the, to these comments um of <laughs> our episode on review yeah i I, I guess the the final point is just that it's not the fact that it is in europe for all the historical resonance that has it's the the conflict between nato and russia um or indeed between you know kind of us and another major power um i want to take a quick break just to announce it is thursday the 8th of september at 1435 uh, at least here in brazil it's 1735 gmt that uh Liz Windsor, Lizard Windsor, is no longer with us. Um, so, you know, I think we, we haven't had a kind of historic moment on the podcast while we're recording. So I thought we'd take advantage to to, to commiserate, commemorate, whatever. All right. R.I.P. Brenda. Pour one out for a real one. Um, yeah. I mean, thank, thank you for interrupting to do that. I mean, I don't know if that kind of news blaring thing works on a podcast because... It'll, you realize, Alex, not. people are not listening to it oh, right yeah, now. I know, but it's recorded and then. Um... Yeah, to be fair, to be fair to Alex, I think it might well have happened a few hours ago, and they're only just announcing it now. That's true. It seems to have been a very well. If you, any of listeners in Britain will have seen, it was 
probably a very well coordinated and choreographed um uh affair for the last few hours and that they deliberately waited until people came home um to see the six o'clock news i think this is the sheer power of the british establishment the queen dies when we say she dies and uh, not when uh her, you know life is leaves her body um which i think is quite quite impressive anyway um that that, that little um royal death interlude um aside we're going to continue this uh there's one more point from uh, the episode about where we discussed the reviews. Um, Eli says the problem with the national sovereignty versus globalism argument is that it ignores the actual basic dilemma. Any kind of majoritarian democracy has to involve a majority among someone. All polities are limited in scope to some actually existing citizenry. This implies that if you're committed to any and every limited actually existing citizenry being a conservative barrier to your imagined community of humanity, you're really committing to a much deeper, more anti-democratic, utopian humanist idealism than you're admitting. Um, effectively, that there's always going to be a, you know, democratic majoritarianism always involves some sort of bounded community, no matter where you set the boundaries. I think that's well put. Yeah, so, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, we 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 talked about um, yeah, it's this, this sort of point. thing quite a lot. But yeah, I mean, inter-nationalism. There's a there's a starting point of of a of a political community which then enters into alliances and various agreements with other political communities, but you need that boundedness and it's you know more or less arbitrary um in various contexts, but you can't have a if you try and have if you try and have everyone, you have no one in your political community. It's Kantian nonsense. Indeed. Uh it is it is Kant, it is Kantian Kant. Um, C-A-N-T. Anyway. I think you're probably the first person ever to make that, mm, that joke. It's, I'm just, I'm just, it's, it's I'm just jealous worn, I didn't get that Pretty first. worn, that one. <laughs> yeah, that's the real issue here. Um, anyway, um, for, moving on, episode 276 and 277, Broken Promises with Fritz Bartel. This was a very popular episode, understandably. Um, it's fascinating material um, and a fascinating interviewer as well as interviewee, if I may say so. Uh, <laughs> so who was who was the interviewer? I I don't know. Um, I don't I'll have know. to look He's, that up. Um, some bald dude. Uh, Eli comments um, um, suggests Marxist Herbertism. Herbert here referring to the author of Dune. Dune's sci-fi construct Spice was allegorical for hydraulic despotism over energy supplies. It's so on the nose. The author is practically winking at you, going, "Hey, this is about geopolitical blocks fighting over oil." All through the text. By nice coincidence, his various superhuman powers, unlocked by using spice, it's a drug, map nicely to the interaction between the knowledge economy and the drug trade, which the Californian ideology gestures at. Herbert was, of course, writing around 1964 and could basically see these things as they started to happen. I would argue that his implied proposals for political responses scatter out of, uh, scatter out of reach of tyrants, develop technology to facilitate this independence from any one ruler, live to be live to be illegible to the state, are pretty lacking, even sort of reactionary anarchism. But oh well. Uh, Phil, you had some interaction with Eli on this. Um, comments, um, you're a Dune fan. I just asked him to elaborate on, you know, what he meant, essentially. And, um, you know, as far as, you know, as far as you can kind of... Um, extract a, a political vision out of these kinds of um grand delinquent kind of fantasy or science fiction vistas you know i think Eli's is pretty i think Eli's is a pretty good um is a pretty good account of of um 
you know, of what Herbert's yeah. might look like. We, we should actually probably do more on sci-fi. I know, Phil, you're a fan. Um, I am occasionally as well. And we have um, spoken yeah, of, of, of doing fan. so. Yeah. So oh, we should maybe, I, we should maybe, I, would, if listeners are interested and, and want us to do um, some stuff on sci-fi, do let us know. George. I have a, I disagree with Eli's um, reading of Dune though. I think it's not about oil. It's clearly about cocaine. Spice is cocaine. There's, you know, people, they, they use it, they get all loopy and they can navigate they can drive better you know that's it it's that simple don't read don't go to these geopolitical <laughs> allegories it's, it's generally the Dr- drugs are cool allegory. is the conclusion yeah um, um yeah also i would also say that the um, I, I rewatched the um, the lynch version actually and i don't i'm i'm gonna say something heretical i i don't think it's as good as um dennis villeneuve's version so mm. I don't, I, you know, listeners can, that's, that's, that's one of those, it's not clickbait, but it's like, um, comment bait. So have a, have a, tell us what you think. But uh, by coincidence, there's an upcoming comment on, uh, techno Islam or something like that, um, which fits quite well with the Dune themes anyway. Um, one last comment with regard to the Fritz Bartella episode, Broken Promises. And this is a, a nice comment recollecting an experience that we're too young to remember um, or to even have experience. Uh, so this is from Paul Brewer. As far as this specific episode goes, Alex says something like, it's almost hard to imagine the economic world before the 1970s. I think almost is doing a, a lot of heavy lifting here, as people of my vintage are at least dimly aware of the economic world prior to 1973. And Paul goes on to give some examples of this, which I think um, bring the kind of lived reality uh, quite a bit to life. In fact, I would say that that world persisted in a fashion up until the mid-1980s. My first payslip working in England in 1982 deducted some 30% of my income. Prior to that, after I finished university, where most of my coevals had free tuition and a means-tested maintenance grant in 1981, I had been signing on uh, for benefits every couple of weeks down at a little church hall in South Croydon. There's no way I would have got that money under the current regime, and it made a big difference to my life experience. In a couple of years' time, we had 10p, 10 pence bus fares on Sundays in London until the borough of Bromley kicked up a fuss. Also, local government rates were based on a value of the house as a rental property or something like that and paid for by the owner. So we didn't have to find the poll tax on top of the rent. Bliss it was to be alive in that dawn or something like that. That 30% income tax underpinned a lot of that and oh, how people complained about it. There's more, uh, there's more fact to you never had it so good than we appreciated at the time, perhaps. Um, indeed, I'm sure, um, you know, there's probably for those who remember some nostalgia for social democracy, for, for all that there's been a lot of, um, you know, ideological lifting done um, to remember the 1970s only as crisis. In some ways, our time is far more crisis ridden than the 1970s was. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not so I can't really get on board with uh with Paul Brewer's um, comment. Um, and I mean, I guess it's more a criticism of Alex, of course, because he says it it's almost is. hard to imagine an, e- well, an economic world before the 1970s. It's not. Why is it so hard to imagine? 
And many people, I think, have folk memories, which will have been given, you know, kind of transmitted by their parents or grandparents. If, you know, presumably if you talk to them, you will have some kind of vision or, um, like I say, some kind of folk memory of what those of what those were. Um, but yeah, Phil, I, I think I think you're no, I think you need to contextualize Alex a bit more. So he's uh, he was socialized in the the end of history period. In which all potential uh, options were foreclosed. So his his um, imaginative horizons, his brain was shrunk, shriveled up, very into very true. narrow, like way to understand the world. I've, and I've been working true. really hard to grow my brain recently, and <laughs> at the end of the end of history. <laughs> and uh, and I'd say, any, you know, let's not any get... weird, weird weird tricks and um, things things in the brain <laughs> we industry. Say, like, <laughs> the brain one weird trick to make oh. your brain grow. But you wouldn't right, want your brain to grow. Back to the comment. Crush inside let's get back to the comment. Let's get <laughs> yeah. back to the comment. Uh, what I was going to say was Paul Brewer's also his paraphrase of Wordsworth's, you know, um, poem for the French Revolution. Blessed was to be, um, what was it? Blessed was to be alive in that dawn. Oh, and young now. was very heaven or something like yes, that. Yes, something like that. Anyway, but I mean, you know, let's not get carried away. Like, uh, because there was like 10p bus rides in um you know in uh in, in the 1980s and before they introduced the poll tax it's not quite in the same league i would humbly suggest uh to paul well yeah uh, fewer, the, fewer, uh, French fewer fewer guillotines yeah there but, is but, there, but there is a there is a point i did want to bring in which is not directly related to the comment but mary harrington has an article in unheard uh recent one which i thought has makes some interesting points she points a sort of inflection point uh, for those kind of in their early 40s and above and those below, I, which you could basically say, you know, those who were born in 1980. Her argument is that everyone born after that has become part of a post-literate public in which we're just, you know, uh, taught to read short lines and the shorter the content, the better. We don't really believe in debate as a as a progressive process of, of coming to towards the truth. Um, it's just about the attention economy and so on. And that that's a big generational dividing line. I think that there's a lot to that, though I also would argue that the end of history is a major fact in that, because if you were born in 1980, you were 10 in 1990, and that means that you have no real kind of proper recollection of what life was like, um, you know, th through the Cold yeah. War and before. And I think that that impacts people's consciousness quite a lot. I mean, it's kind of where we started this podcast from in, in kind of reflecting on that. It's something we wrote about in the book as well. Um, and so it might maybe I, I only mention it because it, it brings me back to the extent to which 1980 might actually be an important, uh, important dividing line. Yeah, I, I, I saw that article. I, I'm, I started reading it, but after about a couple of sentences, I just lost attention <laughs> and uh, yeah. went on my phone. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on. Um, episode 279, Society of the Speculative with Aris Comporosos Atanasio. Uh, nearly, nearly got it. Um, Anders William Berg says, George likening his jokes to the function of, of a Doonesbury or Garfield cartoon in a newspaper felt very apt. I have personally gone from what the fuck is this guy's problem to a haha, oh, George reaction when hearing George's awful jokes. Hmm. Some of us are still in the prior phase, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I was going to say me too. I don't know that I've moved on. So yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is this guy's problem? That's a pretty that's a pretty like harsh <laughs> reaction. I'm glad to I'm, you know, I, I think it's like, you know, like many things, not enjoyable to start with, but you just gotta persist and then eventually it becomes um it becomes bearable. But no, I'm I'm you know, 
Junesbury or Garfield, they make a shitload of money. They sell their their collection of um, cartoons separately to the newspapers, the failing newspapers. If this are is the failing, a shit, are you making a shitload of money, George? That you've not told us about off the back of your uh, participation. I would really like uh, to know about no it. No comment. You are. No comment. George handles the money, so he might actually just given off that he's embezzling which you know anyway no comment um, speak to my lawyer <laughs> blake says um listening to this i almost felt like we're back in 2011 with Komporozos talking about decentralized form like movements occupy left populism etc it's a shame that after a decade still nobody has found a way to translate these movements into effective political organizations or anything but footstools for technocrats and political opportunists um i think that's well put i'm going to continue because the following comments also relate to this issue ran heilbrunn uh, in a relatively longer point but i'm going to try to read it out because um as usual some very good stuff in there um firstly it seems to me that the author's position corresponds to what Mark Fisher called vulgar Deleuzeanism, a too forcefully affirmative view of the present that denies or evades the fundamentally negative aspects of our socio-historical condition. So this is like the emphasis on concepts like fragmentariness, ephemerality, fluidity, uh, as if it's almost a no- it, this, this, these emphases are a natural consequence of this Deleuzean bent. To me, there is something deeply outdated about this attitude. It's an obvious legacy of the new left. And thus, I wonder whether the timelessness and originality of the subject matter is not undergirded by a deeper political intellectual anachronism. Relatedly, I notice that there's a kind of anti-nostalgic impulse that comes up fairly often in your discussions, in our discussions on BungaCast, particularly when you talk about the so-called Tante Glorieuse, uh, but also more generally. Uh, While I totally support the suspicion towards nostalgia, I also think that not every past-oriented critique of the present amounts to a romantic idealization of previous historical phases. I don't see why saying that, for example, dating apps are a problematic development, that they undermine people's capacity for intimacy and commitment, is nostalgic. In the exact same way, one could argue that there is something nostalgic about saying the quality of our public debate, of contemporary art and culture, and so on, of mainstream journalism, has deteriorated during the last several decades. So while nostalgia is indeed something to be avoided, there's nothing inherently nostalgic about saying that in some important respects, life in the past was better, um, which actually touches very directly onto the conversation yeah. we were just having. Yeah, with Paul Brewer's comment, you know, and um, I mean, I think how, you know, Halbrun's comment is really well put. And, you know, I think uh, I think uh, you have to concede its force. It's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to, um, it's a tricky thing to pull off is to, you know, offer critique without nostalgia, um, or at least without valorizing, you know, kind of reifying or valorizing the past or elevating it too, too strongly. Um, you know, but, you know, I take, yeah, I take the point. I would, um, yeah, I, I, I go back or tend to go back to that distinction that Michael Lowy distinction between romantic um anti-capitalism and the other sort of anti-capitalism that basically if you're critiquing something in in the in terms of pre-bourgeois values then this is a nostalgic critique or this is a nostalgic impulse but it doesn't have to be you don't have to criticize the present on through looking at something which it replaced instead there is a you know it, it is tricky and all this kind of poetry uh, revolution poetry of the future not of the past stuff it, it's, it's not easy to do but i think you can recognize if you start from a recognition that you you can't go back to the context in which all of these things existed you can 
you can avoid nostalgia because it's ultimately quite kind of a hopeless political emotion because it's looking you know that you can't go back and that's what that's what drives it it's 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 a you know it's a resignation to the fact that there's no you know you're not going to be able to to restore these things yeah i think that's right i mean this touches on like a very important point about what your subjective uh posture with regard to history kind of is right because we all agree that you shouldn't be nostalgic uh, and that there's no going back. And I think that's a fundamental kind of law of history almost. But that doesn't impede us from, one, drawing resources from the past. And two, it doesn't imply necessarily a sort of accelerationist position, which I think is is what some of these comments are accusing Aris Komporozos of. And I think perhaps to a certain degree, rightly, it, I, I, as I said in that interview, I think it's neat how he tries to find the way out through um, a lot of the contemporary developments, but there's an element into which you end up a bit affirmative. And there's so much crap about the contemporary world that just simply tailing what capitalism is doing in its own, it's in its ongoing advance ends up just kind of affirming those tendencies, especially when those are so destructive of the very capacity for organizing against it or for changing the world, right? So if it's like capitalism atomize, is atomizing, celebrating as a lot of the left does today, and accelerating a lot of those atomizing and individualizing tendencies seems like uh, a, very much a sort of dead end. Um, so it's it is yeah. it is tricky. I and I I, I have to confess I was a I was a teenage Alex accelerationist or maybe not teenage but early twenties accelerationist back when that was um, back when that was uh, in fashion you when know, it was yeah, cool back when it was cool. Um, but I I've come to you know adopt uh, Benjamin's handbrake. Which is basically the idea that you know capitalism is this runaway train, and that the the challenge is not just is not to take control of the train or drive it faster somehow, but pull an emergency handbrake and get it off the rails. Um, which I think is maybe um, abstract, you know, but yeah, many people are early early twenties accelerationists doing too many too many drugs, staying up too late, thinking we just need to we just need to get get things going, guys. We just need to like get some energy in here and then we can get to yeah. the next stage of but that, but that was an end of history thing as well because it everything seems True. so static that you're like come on make stuff happen and now there's there's a lot there's a lot of stuff happening and uh, so <laughs> be careful what you wish for no but mm. i wanted to go back to blake's comment because i think saying it's a shame that after a decade still nobody has found a way to translate these movements into effective political organizations i i disagree i think one it's not a shame the tyranny of structurallessness like these political organizations on this these kind of swarm like um model would be terrible um or, or i would not like them and i don't think that i think it's also was impossible there was no like they don't they specifically in their structure and the way they operate militate against precisely kind of becoming effective political organizations in the sense of that i assume blake means i.e taking kind of national power um and they're very well designed for political opportunists and for careerists um so i think but, but where do you go you from know, there then well it's a good thing that 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 kind of um period's over and we you know it, it was always going to fail it failed and we but, um, but we're still it succeeded but... on its own terms or on the terms of 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 some of its actors um, <clears throat> but not on the terms I would kind of. But that continues, right? To. Because like anything from like the truckers protests in Canada to the Gilets Jaunes or anything else also follows that model effectively. They might not ideologically hold to an idea of 
you know, or internet organizing and being a swarm and all, all that kind of ideological coding. But the basic uh, meat of the of the matter is still these kind of spontaneous protests, which aren't able to um, be driven into a, a kind of organizational form, um, which might prove to be longer lasting. Uh, so that, I think that's that's the issue, right? Well, it's an yeah, issue that maybe. we're still confronted with. Otherwise, you're saying we know, I don't know, that we have to be completely uninterested in any kind of revolt, spontaneous revolt that happens. Not completely uninterested, but it, you can have a situation of class struggle without classes, as E.P. Thompson would put it, where you have, you know, you have these movements and you have these protests and these organizations. But really, the question is, how do you organize a class as a class and how do you um, get it to act politically and collectively? And this isn't, of course, to dismiss the Gilets Jaunes or the truckers both of whom, and particularly the truckers, I think I, I defended against onslaughts from uh, from from my, my podcast co-hosts, um, if I remember correctly, which I might actually not be be doing. Um, no, that's fucking fantasizing. When did your two podcast hosts attack you over the truckers? At least one of them didn't, which was I supported the truckers. Alex fucking attacked you over the truckers. I don't think the truckers need defending. I think they could maybe do you know with organizing directing to to, to some poll anyway ah, we're not going to go down that ah, road. no i said they were coherent this is it i'm remembering now you it. have to remember all of the grudges and the gripes and the the uh you have to keep a like nixon you have to keep a notebook of everybody who's wronged you why how and how you're going to get them back um this is a real deep cut of like bonus bonus really going back to that. <laughs> what was my point other than to say that i still think i'm right I mean, no I, just to, just to bring back the discussion on onto track it's just that all i mean my view that all of these revolts have an element of incoherence because they're not they don't spring from an organization there are few organizations within that mass either so it's not like oh there's a communist group within this and a liberal group and a monarchist group you know that it's all just a, a collection of individuals in all of these cases and therefore is necessarily incoherent because everyone comes with different hopes aspirations views positions etc um and the condition of the end of the end of history is still that you have to somehow yeah kind of grapple and engage with these movements when they spring up and some are more promising than others um some offer more possibility but no one's figured out uh, exactly how to move past their ephemerality yeah no i i think the problem still remains one of political authority and representation and these these movements are coherent in representing an, an interest but they don't they're not intended to be a solution to that kind of central political problem maybe that's mm. something we could agree on or agree to disagree on yeah no and, no i think uh, that's fair okay so uh moving on still on the speculative communities episode um vulcan discusses uh in reference to Aris Komporozos's use of um, uh, Anderson's, Benedict Anderson's imagined community. Um, he says that a stake in the nation of an idea of how we got here, not conceived nostalgically, but as a legal claim, seems to me almost the last remaining chip which the common man has left to speculate with. This has been a forbidden idea for 80 years, so the gamble on rediscovering the non-ethno-status nation seems quite generative. Um, feel free to comment on that. I think that's a useful point. 
Um, if not, uh, Nick Johnson and similarly, Dshams underscore make a point. Uh, well, firstly, Nick Johnson, he put um, finds that Aris puts the arguments of Le- Levi- Levi's Freaks of Fortune and Michael Feher's rated agency into the language of Wendy Brown. Good that they're getting circulation. I don't know those uh, two former references, um, but Wendy Brown is also the subject of Dshams' point. Uh, it's hard for me to discern the difference between what the guest is suggesting and the by now tired attempt to find, quote unquote, resistance to neoliberalism or capitalism in every little thing people do individually or collectively. It makes sense, given that his major influence seems to be Foucault and Wendy Brown, but I'm still surprised this kind of thing still has legs. So um, very much differing views on uh, on Wendy Brown's interpretation of neoliberalism and resistance. I tend to think, I think Vulcan's point kind of, it's an an important one. And my instinct tends to be that it's the thing that the, it's the thing that the ruling class can't really abide. It's people kind of saying this is this is the this is the the nation we want to have you know controls on capital there are other sorts of controls on things but to have controls on capital it just seems like there is a yeah to have the the last remaining chip with which the common man has left to speculate i think that's an interesting way to put it and there does seem to be some some political like hay to be made to put it that way in sort of exploring what exactly that would would look like and a, a political definition of the nation not an an, eth- an ethno status one yeah indeed um okay so to move on last two ones uh firstly to episodes 281 and 282 foreign fighters left and right with stefan bertram lee uh carson h makes a really interesting comment it's a bit long but i um, will try to read it uh, quickly and intelligibly, uh, what Stefan says about nihilism or the desire to escape from it, and of course, this is a book that Stefan is writing on uh, how I was or how I stopped being a teenage nihilist. Uh, uh, Carson finds this very interesting. The irony is that the feeling of meaningless or purposelessness is always on some level an index of its opposite, a stubborn and desperate hunger for meaning and purpose. How or on what terms the latter relates to the former in a given instance or how the desire for meaning or purpose confronts the apparent absence thereof is perhaps worth exploring, not just as an existential question, but as a social, historical, and political one. In this connection, I'm reminded of Susan Schneider's recent book, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. As she writes, apropos of this episode and this podcast in general, and this is a long quote, but I think it's worth reading. The Islamic State is worth studying, not because it is a threat to, quote unquote, us, but because its appeal, ideological pillars, and operational rationale has much to teach about political and social crises the world over. In this sense, I regard the Islamic State as a microcosm that highlights the tensions and limitations inherent within neoliberalism, a response that both mimics and negates its underlying rationale. Thus, the individual is central, even as individual rights are ridiculed. The community is both theoretically universal and exclusionary in practice, and sovereignty is punitive at the same time that it is disavowed. Perhaps most importantly, examining jihad alongside contemporary social and political formations in the West underscores a common nihilist thread, one characterized by the inability to imagine a different sort of life here on Earth. From this perspective, the jihadist apocalypse and the end of history appear less like oppositional projects than symptoms, uh, different symptoms of a common and wholly modern malaise. 
think that's very well put and it's probably worth um, making a call back to certain episodes we've done on ISIS. We um, did one called The Call about Saudi funding of Islamism and in particular one, um, which I think Phil hosted. Um, can you remember the name? Um, Daryl Lee, um, his book about the universalism kind of of uh, the war on terror and the universalism in um, in jihad. Yeah. Or jihadism and how it emerged out of um kind of third world or the the kind of decay of third worldism in the Muslim world, although he didn't quite frame it like that. But yeah, I mean we've had um we've had a few kind of uh, a few episodes on um adjacent themes. Don't do yourself down, Phil. We had an uh, an episode on your book, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, didn't we? I mean that I think was uh is on a load of these these themes and make some of the similar points about you know what is it to be uh to be a nihilistic citizen of um islamic state so yeah yeah that's a good true. one uh good um yeah good point there's always another comment on this episode from pier paolo tamburelli who says uh may be unfair but at the end i wondered if bertram lee is ne- next jd vance or next lawrence of arabia and speaking of this, I would have asked at least for for, for the fun whether he is a UK spy. Um, uh, Touche, uh, Pierre Paolo. So next Steph, time we have yeah. um, Stefan on, we'll definitely ask whether or not he's a spy. Well, and, and Stefan, if you're listening to this, and you very well might be, um, you know, answer your answer your accuser, uh, answer Pierre Paolo. Um, so also, I, I, will will he take the the James the James Bond or the Sterling Archer approach to being a spy? Like, if you were a spy, why wouldn't you tell everyone? It's a very cool thing to do. That's <laughs> right. the Archer approach. Or will he say no? But he, if he was a spy, he'd say no. And if he wasn't a spy, he'd also say no. So asking him, mm. I mean, how are we going to know? Yeah, we need we need no to, to um, no way to the truth. Invite him over for a um a, a bottle of water and a and a and a towel. Mm. See um, if he see if he's dark. crying today now that the that. queen has died. Um. This point about Islamism and nihilism more generally, I mean, it does put me in mind of something else, which is something more of my area of interest um, for maybe obvious reasons, but which is evangelical Christianity, which has grown massively in Brazil, which I think also in some ways represents a bit of a microcosm of um, at once resistance to and acceleration of neoliberalism or late capitalism or whatever you might have, um, which also in its own way exhibits um, a sort of flight from rationality, a turn towards magical thinking, um, also a strong desire for community, as well as being incredibly individualistic, directly motivated by profit, prosperity, um, increased wealth, which itself is seen as an index of godliness, effectively. Um, And so it's also another kind of one of these contradictory formations in the modern world, in the contemporary world, which kind of somehow give voice to our alienation as well as seeking to combat it at the same time as accelerating that very alienation. Um, of course, the Islamic State is a long way from in, in terms of the, its nihilism compared to evangelical Christianity. So if you look at some of Bolsonaro's supporters, uh, a, a large part of which his base is evangelicals, neo-charismatics, neo-Pentecostals, um, there is certainly a sort of nihilism there in its embrace of um, violence, exterminism, and so on. So um, it's definitely an ambiguous formation. Anyway, something maybe to return to in a dedicated episode. Yeah, just just quickly, I think to take the the comment more more seriously, I think it was one of the most interesting aspects of the the um, discussion and that we had with Stefan that you know the, the the starting point it was was nihilism, and you can see that 
how how on the one hand that's related to Islamic State and, and on the other hand, and he talks to sort of I think really nicely how that's related to his own political trajectory and, and maturity, so, uh, maturation, sorry. Um, yeah, so I think it's a, um, and the way that Carson puts it, that it's a, an exist, it's a, not just an existential, but a social, historical and political uh, question, i.e. The, the question of nihilism or alienation or lack of meaning. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good starting point for analyzing a lot of social and political trends, particularly perhaps some of the more extreme ones, as you know, as you were also saying, Alex. So yeah, I thought it was a good, very, it was a good mm. comment on a good, a good discussion. Okay. Um, and that's basically it. There's been two episodes which have come out for really uh, the first Bungazel on Brazil uh, and the episode with Brank Milanovic. But as those just came out uh, two, three days before recording this, there haven't been very many comments on it. We look forward to addressing those at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus. As always, we hope you've taken something from this. If you've, you, I hope you've enjoyed it. Apologies if you haven't, uh, if we haven't responded to your comments, but uh, we'll be back with another one again in maybe six weeks, six to eight weeks again. So uh, we look forward to speaking then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.